Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together today in this house. Father, we thank you that we have had an opportunity already to sing your praises, to declare your goodness, to remember all the good things that you have done for us. Father, we've had an opportunity to give to our tithes and our offerings, and we pray, Father, that you would take those and multiply them for the sake of your kingdom. But now, Father, as we come to your word, we pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate it, that, Father, you would let it be real to us and living and active in our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. In his book, The Case for Faith, Lee Strobel talked about a man by the name of John Templeton. John Templeton probably isn't a name you've heard before, but if you were in the 1940s and 50s, he was a very well-known Christian evangelist. He led several crusades alongside Billy Graham. At one point, John Templeton planted a church, and that church quickly grew to more than 1,200 people. But if you were to look up John Templeton today, you would find that he's no longer a pastor. And a matter of fact, he's no longer a Christian. He left his faith, and he became an agnostic. That means somebody who doesn't believe you can even know whether or not God exists. So what happened? Why would a man like that, an evangelist, a pastor, why would someone who seemed to have such a close personal relationship with God jettison his faith, leave Christianity altogether? Well, in his own words, he said it was because of a picture that he saw in Time magazine. These are his own words. He says that it was a photograph in the magazine, a picture of an African woman. They were experiencing a devastating drought and she was holding her dead baby in her arms and looking up into heaven with the most forlorn expression. I looked at it and I thought, is it possible to believe that there is a loving or a caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? How could a loving God do this to that woman? Who runs the rain? I don't, you don't, but God does. Or at least that's what I thought. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew it was not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There was no way. Who else but a fiend could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was a little rain? I don't know about you, but whenever I share my faith with other people, one of the very first questions, usually the very first question that comes up is this. If God exists, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world today? If God is powerful and God is good, then why is there evil in the world today? We're starting a series this morning. For the next couple of weeks, we're looking at surviving the storms of life. And the first thing we want to address this morning is the question, the simple question. Why sometimes does bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering in the world today? I mean, all around us we see signs of suffering. If you think about all kinds of different problems we have in the world today... First of all, there's the kind of natural disasters. We have tsunamis, and we have earthquakes, and we have drought. Then we look at different other problems. We have people who 
get stricken with cancer in the ripeness of age. Young people who have all kinds of problems, birth defects. If you look at statistics in the United States of America, and these statistics are a little bit old, so I mean things are even worse today. Think about this. There is a woman beaten in the United States every 15 seconds. Two women are raped every minute. 46 are killed in alcohol-related deaths every day. Six children are abused or neglected every 60 seconds. There's a murder every 15 minutes. There's a robbery every 51 seconds. That's just one country. I mean, think about that. If God is real and God is good and God exists, why is there so much suffering in the world today? Well, to answer that question, I want to answer it the way that Jesus answered it. And I want us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. It's on the screen behind me, or better yet, you can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew 13, 24 says this, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted up and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may also root up the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The servants here to the master had three questions. Two of them were asked, and one of them was implied. It's a question that I would have asked if I had been one of the servants. The first question was this. They said, sir, didn't you plant good seed? Didn't you plant good seed? The first point in this parable is this, that God planted good wheat. You see, we like to blame God for our problems, don't we? We like to make God the bad guy. The argument is this. If God exists, and God created everything, we believe that, and if evil exists in the world today, then God created evil, right? If God created everything and evil exists, then it only makes sense that God created evil. In other words, who's at fault? Who's to blame? It's God's fault. Somehow God did something wrong. Somehow God blew it. We point the finger at heaven and we say, God, it's all your fault. That's exactly what the servants do here. It says that a man went out and he planted good seed in the field. But then an enemy came in and put in the weeds. And so the servants, as soon as they see the weeds, go back to the master and say, it's your fault, you didn't plant good seed. And what does the master say? The master says, no, 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 it's not my fault. I planted good seed. And likewise, when God created the earth in Genesis chapter 1, it says in Genesis 1.31, 
God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Very good. That when God created the world, he created the world good. There wasn't weeds in it. It wasn't the seed. It wasn't God's fault. The seed was healthy and vibrant. So, where did the weeds come from? Where did the evil come from? Well, Genesis 1.26 tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean that we've been created in God's image? You ever wonder about that? It says that we were created in the image of God. What does it mean? I mean, does God look like you? No, it says that God is spirit. Does God have two hands and and, and two arms and two legs? No, God is spirit. So what does it mean that we were created in the image of God? Well, that means that God gave us, unlike everything else that he made, the rocks and the trees and the animals, everything, nothing else that God made is sentient. Now, what does that mean, sentient? That means self-aware. That means that we understand good and evil. We are able to choose between good and evil. Why did God give us that choice? Why did God make us in his image? Because he understood a truth that I hope all of us understand. And that is that love is always a choice. Love is always a choice. You cannot make someone love you. Because the moment you make them love you, it's no longer love. Do you understand that? I don't know how many people here are Trekkies, you know? They like science fiction, they're into Star Trek. I'm a little bit of a Trekkie. I remember this one episode of Star Trek, The Next Generation. They have the, num- you know, number one, William Riker. And, and there was this girl that came on the Enterprise, and she had supernatural ability. She was a Q, which meant that she could just snap her fingers, and anything that she wanted to would happen. And she really liked Commander Riker. And so one day, as she's wondering, oh, I really like this guy, I really like this guy, she just snaps her fingers and makes Commander Riker fall deeply in love with her. And he's like, oh, I love you so much. Oh, I love you so much. And she at first is like, wow, this feels great. This is really nice. But then after a minute, she goes, um, this doesn't feel right. This is hollow. This is empty. This isn't what I wanted. You see, when you make someone love you, It's not love. Because love is always a choice. And God didn't want robots. God didn't want us to just love Him because we had to love Him. And so God gave us a choice. He made us in His image with the ability to choose. And we chose poorly. God created a garden with millions of trees in it. Millions of trees in it. Adam and Eve couldn't have eaten from a different tree for the next thousand years and never eaten of the same tree twice. There was that much in the garden. It was beautiful. And yet there was one tree. And they said, God said, don't eat from the one tree. And what did Adam and Eve did? They ran to the tree. They ran to it. The one thing they couldn't have is what they desired. 
J.I. Packer said this, The assertion that human beings are made in the image of God confirms the genuineness of each man's freedom. Experience tells us that we are free in the sense that we make real choices between alternatives that could have chosen differently. And theology agrees. Self-determining freedom of choice is what sets God and his rational creatures apart from, say, the birds and the bees as moral beings. That God gave us a choice and we chose to run, from, we chose to run away from him. And what is the choice? What is the results of that choice? Because of our sin, the world has become corrupted. There's an old saying that says this, that God chose to create the earth we live on, but man chose to create the world we live in. God chose to create the earth we live on, but man chose to create the world we live in. It's not God's fault. God made the world good, and he made us with the ability to love him. And yet mankind chose to run away. And because of that, everything fell. All creation, the stars in the space, earth itself, all of it changed because of our sin. Lee Strobel said it this way, God created the possibility of evil, but people actualized that potential. The source of evil is not God's power, but it is mankind's freedom. God planted good seed, but an enemy sowed the weeds. And who is the enemy? Whose fault is it? The next time you point your finger at God, remember that there are other fingers pointing back at you. That you're the enemy. That you're the one. What's wrong with the world today? I am said G.K. Chesterton. Sin is not God's fault. It's our fault. And we have chosen to create this world on which we live with all of its problems, with all of its sickness, with all of its death. Planting good wheat, number one. Wasn't the wheat good, the servant said? Yes, the wheat was good, number one. But number two, the second question the servants asked is that, well, there's a problem There's weeds, there's wheat. Why don't we just pull up the weeds? That makes sense, doesn't it? Let's just pull up the weeds. There's a problem, let's fix it. I mean, the master was a resourceful person. He had lots of servants. Why didn't the servants just go out and, you know, start pulling up the weeds? Oh, the master says, it doesn't work that way. You see, because as the plants grew together, their roots were intertwined. If you pull up the weed, what happens? You pull up the weed as well. In removing one, you have to also remove the other. And people say that about God today as well. Well, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-loving, and God can do anything, why doesn't God simply snap his finger and remove all sin from the world today? Have you ever thought that yourself? Why doesn't God just snap his finger and remove all sin? Get rid of all the problems in the world today. Couldn't he do it? The answer is yes, he could. And even more than that, one day he will. So why doesn't he do it? He's waiting. But what is he waiting for? 
2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. What if, when I was 12 years old, God had have decided, you know what? I'm sick and tired of this sinful world. I am sick and tired. I'm going to snap my fingers and remove sin from the world today. If he had done that, I would have been in the weed bundle. I would have a very, very different future. I, for one, am so glad that God waited. Anybody else here glad that God waited? Because you see, all of us faced a moment of decision in our lives at one time. Charles Murray, in 1967, was a student at the University of Cincinnati. He was also on the Olympic diving team. He was training for the Olympic Games, which were coming up the next summer. He was one of these high divers. You know the guys that go up on these high platforms and do jumps off them, flips and things like that? Well, Charles Murray was new at the school. He was not a Christian. And a matter of fact, he had never been to church in his entire life. But his very first class, he was sitting there in class, and there was a guy that came and sat down next to him. And they got talking, and they introduced each other. And at one point, the guy asked him, Hey, are you a Christian? And Charles Murray said, No, 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 I'm not a Christian. In fact, I've never been to church in my life. To which the guy says, Oh, don't you understand? God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. And those words just kind of began rattling around in Charles Murray's head. God loves me. And God wants a relationship with me. He didn't really understand how that could be, but as time went on, he saw that guy, and sometimes they would sit together, and sometimes they would talk. At one point, Charles Murray was going through a very difficult time in his life. One night, he picked up the phone to call up his friend. He said, you know what? I'm just going through a real tough time. I know you believe in God. Would you just pray for me and, 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 and tell me what the Bible says again? And his friend read to him the verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He was thinking about those words. He hung up the phone. He decided that the next day they were having a, a, a tryout for the Olympics he decided he'd better go get some practice, so he went to the university swimming pool. It was an indoor pool, had a glass roof over it, beautiful pool. He had special privilege because he was training for the Olympics. The pool was closed, but he just left the lights off so that nobody would think that anyone was inside, and he used his key, and he got inside. He put his swimsuit on. He climbed up the 30 feet up to the diving platform, and he went to the edge and he turned around and he was standing just with his toes on the edge of the platform. And he put his arms out as he had done a hundred times before, ready to make the backward flip. And just as he was going down to make that flip, he looked at the wall in front of him. And as the moonlight was shining through the glass roof, 
It formed a shadow on the wall. And it was the shadow of the cross. As he stood there, suspended only by his toes, looking at the wall, seeing the cross, he understood for the first time in his life that God truly loved him. That God truly did, through Jesus, want a relationship with him. And there on the top of that diving platform, he bowed to his knees and he accepted Jesus Christ into his heart. As he was doing that, the lights came on inside the pool area. He looked down and there was a janitor walking in. And the janitor looked up and said, Hey, what are you doing up there on that diving platform? He said, It's okay, it's okay. My name is Charles Murray. I have a key to the pool. I'm training for the Olympics. The janitor said, No, 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 I know who you are. Look down. And he looked down and the water had all been drained from the pool. They were doing repairs on it. He had been suspended by just his toes on a diving platform. If he had taken that leap, he would have surely died and immediately gone to a Christless eternity. And yet in that moment, God met him. And in that moment, made all the difference. And he opened his heart and he received Jesus as Lord and Savior. All of us had a moment like that. And we don't know when God is going to snap his fingers. And we don't know when God is going to finally decide to remove sin once and for all. But I'm glad he waited. I'm glad he gave me the opportunity to know the joy and to experience the freedom that I've experienced through a relationship with him. The third question. Wasn't the wheat good? Yes, the wheat was good, number one. Well, do you want us to pull up the weeds? No. Leave the weeds, number two. But the third question, not asked but implied, I would have asked it, is this. Well, what do you want us to do? (laughs) What do we do now? How How do you want us to deal with this? And the answer is very clear. The Master says, wait for the harvest. Wait for the harvest. A time is coming when God is going to right all the wrongs. A time is coming when sin will be answered for. A time is coming when all that we know, all that we see, will be replaced. The perishable will be replaced with the imperishable. The wrongs will be righted. All will be made new. Harvest time is coming. God is going to deal with injustice. God is going to deal with suffering. I heard a story of an atheist farmer. This atheist farmer used to laugh at all of his neighbors. You see, all of his neighbors were Christians. They wouldn't work on Sunday. They wouldn't go out in their fields. They wouldn't do anything in their fields. And this atheist was always out on his fields working on Sunday. As the Christians would drive by, he'd kind of wave at them and say, Go to church! Go on! Go to church! Waste your day! I'm going to be working hard, and you'll see at the end of the year, I'll have more crops than you. He planted on Sunday. He harvested on Sunday. And sure enough, at the end of the year, he brought in his crops, and sure enough, he had a better harvest. He had a better harvest than anybody else on all the farms around him. 
He made more money than all the people around him. And he was so happy about that, so proud about that, that he took some of his money and he put an article in a local newspaper. And the article said this, To all my Christian neighbors, I planted on Sunday, I harvested on Sunday, and I made more money than all of you. Well, there was a little article in the paper the week after that. Simply a little article that read this. To the atheist farmer, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. In other words, you think, you think you got away with it. You think that you're able to live the way you live and that there's no consequences for sin. And there's a lot of people in the world today that think they're getting away with it. They think there's no consequences of sin. They think they can commit murder and they can get away with it. They think that they can steal and get away with it. The reality is is that someday God is going to deal with sin. Someday every person is going to stand before God and have to give an account of their lives. Someday the wrongs will be righted. 2 Peter 3.11 says that since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. That the day is coming. You know, the Bible says that the gospel will be preached in all nations and then the earth shall come. This is the only generation, since Jesus walked the earth, this is the only generation where that is a reality. Where that could be said. Where the gospel is now going into every part of the world, the gospel is being preached in every nation on earth. This is the first generation where that was possible. And I believe that the end is coming close. I'm not going to get into prophecy or anything like that. But I simply want to say that the Bible says that, you know what, while you can't know the time or the day that Jesus will return, you can know the season. A good farmer looks out on his field. He doesn't know exactly what day it's going to be that he harvests. But as he looks at his field, he knows the time is short. It's getting ready. And I think as we look around the world today, as we look at all the stuff that's happening around the world today, all the problems around the world today, as I see that, I say to myself, you know what? It's getting late. It's getting close to harvest time. And we as Christians need to be diligent. We as Christians need to watch and to wait for the Lord's arrival. Because harvest time will come soon. What does that mean to wait and to watch for the Lord's return? There's a lot of Christians today that are waiting, but they're not watching. Do you understand the difference between that? Between waiting and watching? I guess the only story I can give to to demonstrate that is the story of, of this little fishing community. And the men would go off fishing for a long time, months at a time. And then when they'd caught enough fish, they would come back to the port. And it was always a very happy day when the men came back in the fishing boats to port. As the fishing boat would come close, 
the men would all be out on the decks and they'd have their binoculars out and they'd be looking and scanning the horizon. And as a fishing boat came into the port, they would look up and all the houses were around on the hillsides and they would look over and they would say, Joe, look, there's your wife Mary. She's coming down the hill. She's coming down with your kids to meet you. And they look over there, Bob, look at that, there's your wife, she's coming down the hill, she's coming down to meet you. And as the ship came into the dock, and as they came alongside, all the families would be there. And the men would say, oh, there's my wife, oh, look over there, there's my family, there they are. And there was this one guy, he was so excited. He was looking, and he was saying, where is she? Where is she? Where's my wife? And he kept looking up at the house and, and, and expecting his wife to come out the door, but, but nothing happened. And, and the ship arrived. And all the other fishermen went out and their wives and their children met them. But, but, but he walked out and there was no one to greet him. So he took his bag and he put his bag up on his shoulder and he started the long hike up to his house. And he finally got to his house out of breath. He opened the front door, he came walking in, and his wife was there watching television. And she turned around and smiled and said, Oh, you're home. I've been waiting for you. But he said, Yes, but the other men's wives were watching. See, waiting is passive, but watching is active. Are we actively looking forward to the Lord's return? Are we actively looking forward to the day where sin is going to be dealt with. Like Charles Murray, can I tell you, today, this very moment, this very hour, there are thousands and millions of people. Some of them are your family members. Some of them are people that you work with. But they're standing there as if by their toes on the edge of eternity. And the time is growing short. And the time is coming for them to make a decision. And the difference between being in the weeds or being in the wheat is a choice that has to be made now. My prayer is that as we wait for the coming of the Lord, that we would do all that we can to share his love, to share his goodness, to take that good gospel out to the people that need to hear about him, that as many as here may come. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to each one of us. Father, we're so grateful that at some point, at some point along our past, you met us, Father. Like Charles Murray, Lord, you, you took us from the place we were in. And Father, you brought us home. And Lord, we look around the world today and we see so many problems, so many injustices, so many tragedies. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Car accidents and defects. and Sin has so tainted our world today. And yet, Father, we just pray that in the midst of the pain that we would look to you as the author and the giver of life. Even though, Father, we have created such an evil world through our own choices, Father God, even though we have corrupted all the good things, corrupted music and corrupted all these things that you have made good. We wait, Father, 
And we watch, Father, for the harvest time, the great harvest of humanity that is coming, when the wrongs will be righted, when sin will be dealt, when justice will be done. So thank you, Father, this day. Thank you, Father. Help us, Lord, to watch and to wait. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for a closing song.
Thank you. Here's Miss.